Let's open with prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your church. Father, we are not here because we have done anything to save our souls. We are not here because we are worthy in and of ourselves to come before you and to gather to worship you. We're not here this morning because we are self-sufficient and need nothing else. We're here this morning because we need to hear from you. We're here this morning because we want to lift you high and to magnify you. So, Father, I pray that as we have been singing, as we have been worshiping, as we continue to do that, that we would make much of you, that you would feed us from your word and help us to love you and to magnify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Exodus. Uh, just because Pastor Chad is not here this morning, we're still going to stay in that. And the theme that Pastor Chad has been uh, helping us to see from the book of Exodus is that is Jehovah unveiled. Uh, Jehovah unveiled. There was He revealed himself in one way in the book of Genesis, and now in Exodus he makes himself more known to his people. And in Exodus, he is making himself known in ways in which he has yet to do. And it's very magnificent and marvelous ways in which he is doing so. And we'll see those more, especially as we get into the plagues that come on Egypt. But our theme verses for the, uh, our study in Exodus are Exodus 6, 6 through 7. So let's say these verses together as we get started this morning. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." If you look closely at these verses, you will see in there that God is acting on behalf of his people. God is the one who is doing the rescuing. Israel didn't do anything to uh, rescue themselves from Egypt or deserve the rescue from Egypt. But God takes an active role in redeeming his people from slavery. And God is the focus of the exodus And God is the focus of the book of Exodus as well. So today our text in Exodus is Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. Uh, So hopefully you have a copy of God's Word, whether paper or electronic, and you're ready to follow along as we read Exodus 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Meanwhile... Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said, 
Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Last week, when we looked at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we learned that God knows our situation. Pastor Chad focused in especially on verse 25, where God saw the Israelites and God knew. There's great hope in the fact that God sees and knows us in the situations in which we are in. The Israelites in these verses cried out to God for help. They were burdened, they were overwhelmed by the slavery in Egypt, and God heard and saw. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw and he knew. But what we didn't see in those verses is what God would do because of these things. We didn't see what God would do because of what he heard, what he remembered, what he saw, and what he knew. And that's what we see beginning in chapter 3 as we see the beginning of God's plan, God's action on behalf of his people. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we will see that God has come. And there is a wonderful hope and excitement and joy in the reality and the truth that God has come. That's our big idea this morning, that God has come. For Israel then in Egypt and for us today, there is good news in that God has come. Maybe you remember as a child hearing from mom and dad that grandpa and grandma are coming. How many of you ever remember here being told that grandpa and grandma are coming? Okay. And now maybe you didn't call them grandpa or grandma. You had another affectionate name for your grandparents. But when I was told that, and my siblings were told that grandpa and grandma were coming, that was exciting. That was something that we had to go to the window and watch for when would my grandpa and grandma's car drive in our driveway. Now maybe if you're a child here today, you still have that excitement. Maybe if you're an adult today, you might not remember quite as significant that excitement. But we all had that excitement when our grandparents came or when someone important came. That was good news. And for Israel, in Egypt, burdened by the slave masters that they had, the good news that God has come was amazingly joy-giving. So God has come. First, in verses 1 through 3, God appears to Moses. As chapter 3 begins, we find Moses in the wilderness employed as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. Not where Moses probably envisioned himself. You know, when you graduate high school or you get towards the end of high school, you're asked, what are you going to do in the future? Where are you going to go to college? What job are you going to pursue? I doubt Moses looked at someone and said, I'm going to be a shepherd in the wilderness for my father-in-law. He grew up in Pharaoh's court. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He had everything before him. And here he stands in the wilderness taking care of somebody else's sheep. Verse 1 begins, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. This is how Moses' life has been going for about 40 years now. 
He left Egypt at around 40 years old, and at the time of Exodus 3, he's around 80 years old. So 40 years he has been a shepherd, and he is living with his father-in-law, and this is his life. This is Moses' life. This is what he has known. This is what he has been uh, accustomed to. And it's interesting that I said that Moses would willingly choose to serve as a shepherd, to be occupied as a shepherd. If you didn't know, Egyptians saw shepherding as the absolute lowest and demeaning occupation that a person could have. Taking care of animals was not something that was prized, not something that was looked to as success in life. Yet, here we find Moses who lived in Pharaoh's house, who was the son of Pharaoh's daughter by adoption, shepherding his father-in-law's flock. While in Egypt, he had everything. He had wealth. He had power. He had prestige. Now in the wilderness, he had very little and cared for someone else's livestock. Life for Moses was drastically different than when he was in Egypt 40 years earlier. He had everything, and now literally he probably has nothing. It isn't even his own sheep that he cares for. And yet, this is Moses' situation at the beginning of Exodus 3. The narrative in verse 1 continues saying, He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. We're not told why Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. We're not told why he came to this particular spot of Horeb. We're not given why he led the sheep here. And really, it's probably not important, but it's guessed that he led them here in search of grass. Why do shepherds lead sheep or livestock anywhere? For better food, for better pasture. So that's probably what he was doing. He was in search of something, but he had traveled a long way from where Jethro lived And what was normal for him. He was way off the beaten track for where shepherds that he would be with would lead the sheep. And in leading the sheep to this location, Moses comes to to Horab, the mountain of God. Now, you, like me, probably are not familiar with Horab. You know, if I say defiance, oh, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I know where defiance is. I've been there, drove by there, maybe even stopped there. Maybe even some of you live there. Okay? Maybe. But when it comes to Horeb, we don't really know the area that this is. And, and is Horeb the same as the mountain of God? Well, they're, they're both places, but they're not the same place. Uh, Horeb is an area or a region in the wilderness. It was an area or a region in the wilderness, and the mountain of God is a specific place. It would be like us saying that we live in Iowa, the town of Harlan. The town of Harlan is in Iowa, but Harlan is not Iowa, correct? So saying that Moses led them to Horeb, the mountain of God, is saying he led them to Iowa, the town of Harlan. So it's not the same place, but it's in the same area. Moses came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, why is it called the mountain of God? Well, it was the mountain of God because God met with Moses here twice. So maybe you're starting to put together as to where this mountain is and what this mountain's name is. 
We, don't, we aren't told what the name of the mountain is here in the, this passage, but we do learn about it. So Moses meets with God here twice on this mountain, once in our current passage and later during their wilderness travels. The mountain of God has a name and it's called Mount Sinai. Just think about that for a minute. Moses just happens to lead his sheep, happens to lead these sheep to the mountain of God, the place in which God will come and meet with him and talk with him. Not just once, but twice. Now, some might say, well, that just is chance, or, or that's just a coincidence. But it's not a coincidence. It's in God's plan that Moses would come here to the mountain of God. And it was known as the mountain of God to the people of Israel. And Moses is writing these, the book of Exodus to remind the people of Israel what God did and who God is. And this is the mountain of God where God met with Moses and his people Israel. Now, verse 2 begins, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. When Moses arrives at Horeb, at the mountain of God, then the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame, within, a flame of fire within a bush. God appears to Moses on this mountain. And I believe that this, the angel of the Lord here is speaking of God. And I have two reasons for thinking this is who this is. Okay, so for reason number one, I think this is God, because staying within context and reading verse four, it is God who calls out to Moses. God appears to Moses in what Moses describes as the angel of the Lord, but it is God who speaks. Second, I believe this to be God because also in context, God says that he is holy, looking at verses 5 and 6. God says that he is holy. Nowhere in Scripture do we see angels ascribing to themselves holiness like God is holy. Often we see when someone bows down to worship an angel, the angel saying, stop that, don't do that. I'm the messenger. Here, God requests that he take off his sandals because it's holy ground. So I believe that the angel of the Lord is God. God appears to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush. God uses the form of an angel to appear before Moses. Now, Moses, he comes to Horeb. He brings the flock there to the mountain of God, and he sees a bush that is on fire, but yet is not burned up. To a person who's familiar with the wilderness and the desert, to see something on fire was probably not uncommon. Okay? He's probably familiar with fire and seeing things on fire. But what stuck out to Moses is that this bush was not consumed. That's odd. Okay? We all enjoy sitting around a fire from time to time. How many of you have sat around a fire and watched a log that burns but doesn't actually burn? And I don't mean a log that's wet, because we've all seen that, where it kind of just smokes and doesn't actually burn. But this is a flame of fire in a, on a bush that isn't burned up. 
It's not consumed. He knew about it. Moses is like, this is something I should pay attention to. There is a bush here that is not consumed. So Moses goes over to the burning yet not burned up bush and stares at it. He probably thinks, how is this possible? How is it possible that a bush can be on fire and not be burned up? How is it possible that I don't smell the burning bush? That's probably what he was thinking about. And these are good questions, right? Normal people would wonder, why is something on fire and yet not on fire? Moses was, re- was viewing a remarkable great sight. A bush burning but is not burned up is a marvelous thing to behold. And it can only be a work of God, which is what Moses says. And Moses is right to take a closer look and to wonder. God appears to Moses in a place where no one else is around, and he does so in a great way. Moses grew up thinking he was great because he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. We saw evidence of his perceived greatness in chapter 2 when he thinks he has the authority in and of himself to defend the people of God. But God appears to him in a way that only Moses sees and knows and can be amazed. God appears to Moses in this bush. God has come. God has come to Moses, the one who later on in chapter 3 is commissioned, is given the mission to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He appears to him and he has come. Second, in verse 4, God calls Moses. God appears to Moses in the burning but not consumed bush. And now we see God calls Moses. He speaks directly to him, calling him to himself. In verse 4, we see, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Moses goes closer at the in chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 he goes closer to the book to the bush and as he does he does so to investigate and to marvel at this amazing thing he sees and as he does God calls to him imagine with me for a moment that we are with Moses obviously we're not but imagine that we were with Moses okay Moses he's traveled who knows how many days and nights to get to this spot hoping that there is grassland for these sheep that he has been entrusted with. He's probably tired. He's probably thirsty. He's probably hungry. And now he sees something that makes no sense to him. A bush that burns but is not consumed. He doesn't really know if he's seeing something that really isn't there. Maybe he thinks he's seeing a mirage. We don't know what he thinks. Then, craziest of all things, the bush speaks to him. Well, not really the bush, but God within the bush speaks to Moses. I wonder if Moses doesn't look around like, there's somebody else here in the wilderness with me that I didn't see, we didn't cross paths. Why should he expect a bush to speak? Why would you expect a bush to speak? Moses 
He's probably confused at this moment. But as Moses looks around, he concludes that the voice is coming from the bush itself. God is speaking to Moses. It can be the only conclusion that's right that God is speaking. And what an amazing thing we see that God speaks to Moses. God speaks to a human. Not only has God appeared to Moses, but God is speaking to him. This is an incredible thing that God speaks. And here we see what he says. And he says two words, actually the same word, but he says it twice. Moses, Moses. Now, we might see that as, well, God's trying to get his attention. He's yelling at Moses, 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 hey. That's not what God's doing. God's calling him in a gentle, common way that anybody might address someone. And, Mo- and Moses, he replies just simply, here I am. He just replies, here I am. And it might be similar to you and I when someone says our name. We might say, yes. We're just acknowledging that somebody said our name and we're listening. And he calls him. But what's fascinating to me is this call to Moses is not simply God saying Moses' name, but God drew Moses to himself through the great sight of the burning bush, and he speaks gently to him, drawing him to himself, drawing him in. God is calling Moses to himself for a purpose. God will use Moses to do great and awesome things for the glory of God. And it begins here by God gently calling this shepherd of sheep to himself. Moses may not have considered himself worthy of God's calling. He might be like, why in the world is God asking me to come to him? I didn't do anything. I killed a guy back there. That's why I'm here. Moses may not have considered himself worthy. He may have thought he was relegated to a wilderness shepherd for life. But God calls Moses to himself, gently and lovingly, calls him to himself. And it's an amazing thing that what God is doing for Moses and for his people. God calls him, and as we'll see later on in Exodus 3, that God gives him a mission. God gives him a mission, something that he wants him to do. God has come calling Moses to himself. Third, God reveals himself to Moses in verses 5 and 6. God appears to and calls Moses. Now he reveals who he is to Moses. And this is vital, not only to our passage today, but in Moses listening and obeying what he hears from God. Verse 5 and 6 say, Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses was drawn to look at this amazing sight, this burning but not burned bush. And he wonders and he marvels at it. And as he does, he hears God speak to him, God call out to him. And he approaches this bush. He keeps getting closer and closer to this bush. But God stops him. 
God stops him for a very important reason. Moses needs to know something about who God is. And the reality and the truth that Moses needs to know is that Moses cannot, cannot approach God in any way he might choose. God is not approachable in just any common way. God tells Moses in verse 5, do not come closer. Moses probably stops. And he's thinking, okay, you just called me to come. You called out to me, and I've come. But now you're telling me to stop? Moses needs to stop his advance on the burning bush. And God reveals himself to Moses in the next statement that he says. He says, verse 5, Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God reveals himself as the God who is holy. One might wonder, why is the ground holy? Why does God say in verse 5 that for the place where you are standing is holy ground? Why does he say that? Why does he tell him that? Well, I think it might be. Maybe this mountain is a holy mountain. Maybe this mountain was used for worship from other gods and other peoples. I don't really think that's it because I don't think this mountain was a special mountain prior to God meeting with Moses now and then when he will meet with them in the future. It's not special ground because of the ground itself. It is a mountain. It is a place. It is where grass might be growing, where there might be boulders, where there might be birds landing and flying away or other animals nearby. It's a mountain. The ground is not holy in and of itself. What made the ground holy was the one who was there. God is holy. God alone is the holy one. The holy God must be approached in his way. He says, remove your sandals. And if you think forward a little bit in your Bible to when God gave Moses and Aaron and the Levites how to build the temple and the tabernacle and how they should proceed entering and, and taking care of it, he gave very specific details of how they should approach him. This isn't uncommon. This is something that was going to be a pattern for them. The holy God must, must be approached in his way. Holiness is God being separate from sin. God is sinless and cannot sin. He is, totally, he is totally opposite of sin and he cannot allow sin in his presence. He's too pure. God really is the definition of holy. And God is holy. Holy, and Moses needed to know that. This isn't just some God that the Egyptians worshipped. This is the God, the true God, the holy God. Holiness is God. But Moses had a problem. Moses had a problem in approaching the bush. Moses is a sinner. Moses is a sinner, and he was not holy, and therefore he could not come close to God. He couldn't approach God because he had a sin problem. But God, in his grace, was sparing Moses' life by stopping him in his approach. Did God have to do that? No. God didn't have to stop Moses. 
God could have allowed Moses to keep coming forward and instantly killed him because he came close to the holy God. But God had come to reveal to Moses that he is holy, that he is not like other gods. He is the God. For Moses to approach the holy God, he must do so in a way that brings God glory in order for Moses to live and to worship God. So God tells Moses, remove your sandals. Israel in the future was not able to approach God in the same in any way when they came to the tabernacle or the temple. They had specific actions for everything they did, from putting up the tabernacle to taking it down. They had specific instructions for who could enter the presence of God and who could not and how to do that. God continues to reveal who he is to Moses in verse 6. He reveals to him that he is holy. And in verse 6, we see that Moses, or God reveals him to Moses in showing his eternality. Verse 6 says, Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God of Moses' father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-making God, the promise-keeping God is eternal. He's not a temporary God. He doesn't have a shelf life of so long, and then he's no longer God. He's Moses' father's God. He's the people of Israel's God, and he has come. God, or Moses hears who God is, that he is holy and that he is eternal. And Moses can only do one thing. He hides his face. He can't look at God. He realizes this is no casual encounter with just anything or anyone. But he has come to look on God. And he is in awe. And his response shows a true understanding of who God is. He does not need any more persuasion as to who it is who is talking to him. And in whose presence that he has come. He is in God, the holy, eternal God's presence. And so he hides. Seeing the holy God would undo Moses. Isaiah got this in Isaiah 6. It says, as he saw God, as he saw God high and lifted up, he said, woe is me for I am undone. When we come into the presence of God, we ought to see ourselves as who we truly are, as wicked, wretched sinners before a holy God. Moses responds to who God is with great fear. Not fear as necessarily being afraid, but fear as being in awe. That this God, the holy eternal God, would appear, would come to him and reveal who he is to him. And he hides his face. He understood who God is. That God is God. God reveals himself to Moses as the holy, eternal God in these verses. And it's important that Moses knew this truth of who God is because if he didn't understand who God is, it's likely he won't take the task, the mission that he's given seriously. 
But what an amazing thing for the holy, eternal God to make himself known to a sinful, murdering runaway as Moses. What an odd person for God to reveal himself to and to give a mission. A man who was prideful and self-reliant and murder and a murderer and a runaway. He's a fugitive. And yet God has come revealing himself to Moses. We saw in Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 last week that God saw and knew Israel. And that was amazing hope for Israel. He was not distant or uncaring as as some of the Egyptians gods appeared. Now in our passage today we see God has come. His seeing and his knowing led to him acting, and he came. And he made himself known to the man that he will use to rescue his people from Egypt. Moses, in our past today, encountered the holy eternal God who sees and knows. And we will see in the rest of chapter 3 that God acts and has a plan for his people. We must ask ourselves, what What does the truth that God has come mean for us today? What does that truth mean for us today? Is it significant? Is it only significant for Israel and their bondage and their slavery in Egypt? We may not be in that situation where we are uh, slaves, but we may find ourselves in situations that appear difficult and hopeless this morning. As you sit here this morning, you may be going through a difficulty or suffering, and you may feel hopeless or helpless in that situation. You need to know and believe that God has come. God has come. You need to know and believe that. God, the holy, eternal God, is not a temporary God. He's not just any God, but he is holy and he's eternal, and he has come. In the difficult, suffering circumstances of our lives, we may wonder if God hears us when we cry out to him. We may wonder if God even knows or cares. The Israelites had cried out to God, we saw in verse 23 of chapter 2. And now God makes himself known to the one man who will lead the people of Israel. He makes himself known to them. God has made himself known to us as well. Not through a burning bush that doesn't burn up. God has made himself known to us today through his son Jesus Christ. God has made himself known to us through his word. God is the holy eternal God who sees and hears and knows all about each one of us. God also acts on behalf of those who are His in Jesus Christ. Today, we need to know and believe that God has come in Jesus to rescue us from our greatest difficulty and problem in life, and that's not physical or relational suffering or any other kind of difficulty, but is sin. We are enslaved to sin apart from Jesus Christ. We have no power to rescue ourselves. But God has come in Jesus to redeem us from sin's slavery and power. 
the reality is that, and the Bible says this all throughout, that God is holy. And that mankind, each one of us, are sinners by birth and by choice. And we are enslaved to sin. And the good news that God has come is that Jesus has come and died in the sinner's place and rose again. So that we might have life and joy and enjoy God forever. And the wonderful good news is that we can, by God's grace and through His Spirit, respond with repentance of sins and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And we can know this God, that God has come. Now, knowing God has come doesn't remove all of our pain and suffering and challenges in life, but in the pain and suffering of our challenges in life, we have hope. And we have joy. And that is good news. You need to know that God has come to rescue us from our greatest difficulty. If you're a believer here this morning, you've already trusted Jesus as your Savior. You need to rejoice and believe the good news that God has come. In your difficulty and your suffering and in your pain, God hears and knows your cries. God knows. And He has acted. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read that we that uh, the God is working in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What right now the pain that we're going through is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal and lasting and can never be taken away. We need to rejoice and believe the good news that God has come. God has come, and in Jesus, he is with us. So we look to him in faith, and we rejoice in him. God has come. Let's rejoice in God's coming today. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you are holy, that you are eternal. Thank you that you are the one who rescues your people for your glory for our goods, that we can know you and love you and enjoy you forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.